Well, I ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me as we return to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we are focusing our attention on verses 31 through 44. I'll read these again for us and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. Luke tells us, beginning in verse 31, And he, that is Jesus, came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching because his message was with authority. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began discussing with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was getting into every locality in the surrounding district. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made request of him on her behalf. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately arose and awaited on them. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, he departed and went to a lonely place. The multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Father, your word is living, it is active. It is all we need for life and godliness. You promise that to us in your very word. It is that which your spirit exemplifies and highlights and uses to convict us of sin and of judgment to come and to bring those whom you are calling to yourself. You draw those whom you've chosen to salvation, and then by the power of your Spirit, you move them in sanctification. We need you, Lord, to lead us this morning. Lead us in our study this day, so that we may put into practice that which we learn about you. So that the truth that we see concerning you would be on our lips and at the tip of our tongues, And that those who do not know Christ would hear of you. And that they would be in amazement of who you are. 
because they hear of your authority and power. And you, by your grace, would draw them to yourself that they too might know Christ. All of this to your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I grew up in a home where I was taught very early on that when my father spoke, I was to do what he said. He was the leader in our home. When I was 21 years old, I entered into the military, and that very principle was driven into the very fabric of military life. If a superior ranking person commanded you to do some task, then you were required by way of their authority to carry out that task to the best of your ability and to your training. All of that was directly and indirectly taught to me before God brought me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The idea, the reality of authority. I was being taught the principle of authority. The reality that in life and within all of life, there is a subordination dynamic at work. There is a hierarchy in which there is authority and someone is above and someone is below. There is a structure of authority in life whereby all things are subordinate to some other thing. Why is life like that? Why is that built into the very fabric of life. Well, it's built into the fabric of life because in the beginning, when God himself created the heavens and the earth and he created man, he gave mankind an understanding of the authority principle through the commands that he gave them. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he said to them, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. God in the position of authority, God in the place of creator and not creature, is telling the creature that he has created, this is what you can do and what you cannot do. Mankind understood the command. Mankind understood the authority principle. The question was, who was going to rule? That's the question. That was the question for men then. Here's the command. Who's going to rule? In other words, would man come under God's inherent authority as creator, or would man choose to rule himself? Well, of course, you and I know the answer to that because man chose self-rule. Man chose to sinfully reject 
God as ruler in his life, and man chose in that moment to set himself up as self-rule. And therefore, God has said to man, you will die, and therefore man died. Man died spiritually, and man began to die physically. In a sense, death, whether it's physical death or whether it's spiritual death, it is a separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. And in spiritual death, there is God separating himself from man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. The Lord God sent man out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God separated himself from man, put him out of the garden, and placed in front of the garden a guard in order that man would not be able to get back to the place where he could fully confirm himself in his rebellion like the fallen angels. Ever since that moment, man has sinfully exercised self-autonomy in separation from God. And for this to be overcome, God would have to both carry out the punishment that he had said would happen to man, man must die for sin, the wages of sin is death, God would have to carry out that punishment as well as God would have to have a way in order to be able to grant forgiveness. God did something. He came to earth and became man. He became man in order that he might die in the place of men so that he might forgive men. But man loves self-rule. Man loves self-rule. And in Luke chapter 4, we saw this vividly on display as those in Jesus' own hometown reject his message, and therefore they reject him. They want nothing to do with Christ. Now just for a moment, just by way of review for our time this morning, put yourself in their sandals. Put yourself there with them. Here is one who comes into your town. You know this person. You know them. You you grew up with them. You, you were around their family. When you looked at this person, you may have thought he was a bit odd. He was a bit different than the rest of those around. He didn't have the attitudes of rebellion like other kids had with their own parents. He was always polite. He was always courteous. He asked the best questions of the Pharisees. He always did what his parents told him to do, and now he's come back to town, he is all grown up, and he is saying that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the Savior. He is challenging you to believe 
what he is saying. He is challenging you in such a way that he went to the scriptures, he took a passage in the scriptures, a very well-known passage to you in your own upbringing as a Jewish person, and he has challenged you by explaining to you that passage as he read it, read it in such a way that you cannot rightly refute anything that he has said. And the implications of what he is saying are massive for your life. If you believe what he is saying, then everything you thought before is suspect. Everything you thought and how you looked at the scriptures before is all now seemingly just two-dimensional. What he's saying brings a whole third dimension to it all. It's either suspect, if not all just wrong in how you used to think. It means that you'll have to turn your back on many of the ways that you've lived and how you've followed the Scripture. It means that you'll have to turn your back on your own self-rule and you'll have to submit to Him. And it means that if He is the Savior, if He is the one who could truly do what He's saying that He is, He better have the power over sin. He better have the power to vanquish sin. He better have the ability to save us from our sin. If this is Jesus, if He is the one, then He better have the power to save. He better have the power to deliver people from the power of darkness. That's what we see happening and what is on display here in Luke chapter 4. Now, as we begin, I, I, I don't want us to be confused on this issue because it's, it's foundational for saving faith. And furthermore, this truth concerning Jesus Christ is or, or has eternal consequences if we don't get it right. In other words, if we don't understand who Jesus is, if we just see him as the people of Nazareth saw him, then who is it that can save? Then who is it? If Jesus isn't it, then who is it? If, if it isn't the Jesus spoken about in Scripture who saved, if there's some other place to find salvation, if it isn't through Jesus, the one who's the central reality and figure of the Scriptures, then who does save? Somebody please tell me. Somebody please tell me how to deal with my sin if it isn't Jesus. The question we are, we are delving into and looking at here is, who is Jesus? And the only reasonable answer to that question is that He is indeed the Son of God, as it was declared of Him at His baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is indeed the Son of God, and He has inherent and absolute power and authority over all things. 
He has the power to deliver from the domain of darkness. He has already shown His power. He has already shown His ability to deliver those who are under the bondage of demonic forces. Verses 31 to 37 comes down to Capernaum and he goes into the synagogue and there just happens to be this guy there who has a demon. The guy didn't burst into the synagogue when Jesus was speaking. He was there with the people. Last Lord's Day, I was discussing this with someone and they were commenting how amazing it could have been that this might have actually even been the person who was running the synagogue himself. We don't know. We're not told, but this person just happens to be there. There's a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And this demon cries out with a, with a loud voice screaming at the top of his lungs, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? We know there's a day coming when we will be destroyed. Is this that day? Have you come to destroy us? Not just us in the demonic realm, but all who reject you. Have you come to destroy and completely put away all those who don't want anything to do with you? Because we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus says, be quiet. Come out of that man. And the demon immediately does what he must do in the face of God himself. He does exactly what Jesus says. He throws the man down. He doesn't hurt the man. And he comes out and the people are amazed. Why? Because Jesus has not only the authority to command demons, but demons actually do what he says. He has the ability. So he's already shown the power and ability over the demonic forces. And now... And now, in verses 37 and following, he's, or verse 38 and following, he's going to show his inherent power and ability over disease, sickness, and again, the power of the demonic realm. Now, let me just add this as we begin, because sometimes we, we get this in our mind as we're thinking through these things. As great as these things are by way of signs pointing to the inherent power and ability of Jesus Christ, as amazing as they are and as shocking as they are to the eyes of these people and to their surrounding area as they hear of these things coming, mark this down. These things, those things that Jesus does, they are not the purpose for which he came. They're amazing. They're, they're inherent in Him. He, he can do that. He has the power. He's God in the flesh. And yet, this is not the purpose for which He came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, there are three realities about Jesus Christ that Luke highlights in these verses for us. Three realities that I just want to kind of expose us to. One is his inherent power. We're going to look at that again, verses 38 to 41. His inherent power. His power, as we've seen over the demonic forces, he's going to show his power over the sickness as well as the demonic forces once again. 
Secondly, his inner dependence, his inner dependence, verses, verse 42, this is the beginning part of verse 42, Christ has an inner dependence that we need to follow and walk in the way he walks. And then third, his immutable purpose, his immutable purpose, verse 42 and 40 through 44. So his inherent power, his interdependence and his immutable purpose. Let's look then at this first one, the inherent power of Christ, verse 38 to 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they made request of him on behalf of her. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately arose and waited on them. You can just stop right there for a moment. You remember that the city of Capernaum was completely abuzz with the information about Jesus Christ, what he was doing. And the aftermath of all that had gone on in the synagogue, Jesus had cast out a demon out of this one who was in their midst. Jesus had taught the Word of God. He had taught them with concrete declarative statements concerning Himself. He went to that passage in Isaiah chapter 61, and He told them what it said, and He expounded what it meant by what it said, and it all pointed to Him, and and there was no misunderstanding in the clarity of what He said because they, they were enraged by that, and they wanted to take Him out and throw Him off a cliff. And Jesus here rebukes a demon. And it listens to him. People are amazed. Wow. Look at what's happening. And so Luke tells us that after this synagogue event happens, Jesus gets up in the synagogue and goes to Peter's house. Mark's account Mark chapter 1 tells us that this was the home of Peter and his brother Simon. I'm sorry, of Andrew. His brother Andrew. In John 1, 44, it says that Peter and Andrew were from Bethsaida. That seems rather confusing. John 1 says they're from Bethsaida, and Mark chapter 1 and Luke says they live in Capernaum. Well, Bethsaida was just another city on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And apparently, these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, moved from there just a few miles west to Capernaum. I've been to that area. It's not a a real great distance. You say, well, why would they have moved? Well, we're not told why they might have moved from Bethsaida, but they did. Possibly it could have been in order to join their fishing forces with John and his brother James as they were fishing the Sea of Galilee as they did for their own businesses. Maybe that's why they left, just to be kind of closer together. They could have joined their forces together. We don't know that, but we knew they were going to join at least in business. Maybe he moved, probably more likely he moved there in order to care for his mother-in-law, his mother-in-law. We don't know, but they lived in Capernaum. 
And so that tells us also that Peter was a married man. He had a mother-in-law. We don't know what Peter's wife's name is. I always like to joke about that. What's Peter's wife's name? Peter's wife. What's my name? Rebecca's husband. That's how I'm known. We don't know what his wife's name was, but her mother was living with them in Capernaum. That's obvious from this text. And it also tells us that his father's or his wife's father, just from knowing that Peter is caring for his mother-in-law, his wife's father is probably deceased already. And so Peter had taken his mother-in-law into his own care. That's what happens. The text says in verse 38, now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, a high fever. And they made a request Jesus on her behalf. Now, that's no small issue in ancient times. When we hear fever, somebody has a fever, in our day, we, we just think, okay, go ahead, go to the medicine cabinet, get a few Tylenol, take some Tylenol, lay down, rest, we'll just watch it for a while, it's probably no big deal. Right? That's the normal way of a fever, typically, in our day and age. Well, Luke, though, is a doctor. And Luke writes specifically because he has some medical understanding. And you notice Luke says that she was suffering from a high fever. The word in the original language is megas, large, great. This was a great fever. It was a high fever. It was no small fever. Even for their time, as the grammar indicates, she had been lingering some time with this fever. She is in a suffering state. So this is no small deal. No small deal is simply the fact that the demands of everyday life in the ancient world didn't allow for you to just lay down and take a nap like we do, right? You and I get a fever. We go, I'm going to go lay down on the couch or I'm going to go lay down on the bed for a while. Maybe I'll just get a really good night's sleep, sleep 10, 12 hours and get up in the morning. Everything will be fine. Well, in the ancient world, it just didn't happen like that, which is why I believe it says here she was suffering from a high fever. That indicates the severity of the fever. Cures in those days were unheard of. There were not medicines, medicinal things in the cabinet. There was no Tylenol. Most people who got sick in some way, even if they had a small fever, usually would have died from it. So this is the concern. And Peter, to say the least of his wife, they are concerned about her. And so Jesus, when he reveals his power over demons... He casts out the demon in the synagogue. He has the power and the ability to do that. He's the authority, and actually they listen to him. You could imagine the desire to have him come and see his own mother-in-law. It's interesting, if you go to Israel today, you can go to this very place where they say it's Peter's house, not far from the temple there in Capernaum or the synagogue, and there's a big edifice built right over the thing. looks like a spaceship, actually, built by the Roman Catholics who where you can go up into this like spaceship thing and look through a little window down at the rocks and the dirt that is Peter's house. Amazing the things we do to venerate these kinds of things. And so I want us to notice Jesus' response here to the healing because it is power on display. Power on display. And I want us to mark this. 
the cure for her is immediate. The cure for her is immediate. I'm saying that specifically, and I understand why in just a moment. Notice what it says. She's suffering from a high fever, and they made a request on behalf of her. And standing over her, he, that is Jesus, rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. And she immediately arose and waited on them. Now here is power on display, and the cure for her is immediate, And it is absolutely complete. And we know it is complete healing because it says here that she immediately rises up and waits on them. The word for waited is the same word used in Acts chapter 6 and other places for the deacon. She was serving them. This is a service ministry. In other words, she was deaconing them. She was just simply serving them. Now, I want us to pause here just for a moment because I want to make a few comments about healing. I want to make a few comments here about healing and about being healed. There are many today who say they have the gift of healing. You may hear people on YouTube or on the radio or some other TV show or whatever, they say they have the gift of healing. There there are these people out there, uh, you know some of their names, and they mean, they don't mean just healing like, hey, you'll get better, I'm a doctor, here's some medicine, I'll help you heal, help the body heal. They don't mean that, they mean miraculous healing. It's rampant really in our society, and I don't think there's anybody lower when it comes to humanity, then those who pray on the sick and the infirmed by telling them that they can deliver them when they can never deliver them. When all that they ever say is just a sham for their own self-aggrandizement. I don't think there's a lower human than that. If the gift of miraculous healing was available today, then why? Why in the world would those who claim to have it not just simply walk into every hospital known to man in the world and just heal everybody and close the hospital? Why wouldn't they just go down to the nursing homes and go to the places where the infirmed are and just heal everybody? No, instead what you hear today from them is, if you believe enough, you'll be healed. What you hear from them is sow a seed of 100, 200, 500,000 and you'll get your blessing and healing will come. Well, listen, if I had the gift of healing, miraculous healing, I'd just go heal people. I wouldn't vet everybody out to make sure that the person that's coming to me was in such a fashion that I could fake it. That's not what we do. If I had healing... The powers of healing out healed just like Jesus. And that healing would be immediate and it would be complete. Jesus or the Jesus rebukes the fever. By the way, the word rebukes is the same word rebuke back in verse 35 where he rebukes the demon. That word kind of has this idea of, of honor. Jesus takes the place of honor. Jesus assumes the role that he is with the demon and with sickness. And he says, listen, I'm the one who's honored. You listen to me. That's the idea of the word rebuke. And so here is Jesus. Her strength is fully restored. 
And because of that restoration, what does she do? She simply does what all people who are restored by Jesus do. They serve. She just served. She's physically serving Jesus. We're not told whether she became a believer in Jesus Christ or not. We don't know that. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that here, even in this physical healing of this person, there is a spiritual parallel that's happening? And the spiritual parallel is this, that when someone comes to know Jesus Christ, when they are healed by Christ, when their sin is forgiven them, they are given and, and commanded to serve Christ. We are equipped by the Spirit to serve. And so here you see this woman just serving. She gets up and she does what she needed to do. She waits on them. This is the inherent power of Christ. So that even fever leaves when it's rebuked. You ever talk to a sickness like that? Oh, you got a cold? Ah, be out. That would have been nice in the last three years of our country, wouldn't it? His inherent power over disease, by the way, doesn't end there. Verse 40 tells us, And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying hands on every one of them, he was healing them. Notice the text says, after or while the sun was setting. While the sun was setting. He had been in Capernaum in the morning in the synagogue. Cast out the demon from the man. Leaves the synagogue, goes to Peter's house. Rebukes the fever. We don't know how long, but assumingly he's been there quite some time because now the sun is setting. Now it's late in the day. And at first glance, when you read that, you think, man, that seems rather strange. Here's Jesus in the synagogue in the morning. He goes to Peter's house, probably has some lunch there, maybe not too long. And now it's evening. Now all this time seems to have passed. While the sun is now setting, the town's been in a buzz the whole time, and the people wait until evening to bring the disease to Jesus? They wait to, till evening to bring their friends who are possessed by demons to Jesus? Why? Well, we can't forget, this is the Sabbath this is the Sabbath day. For the Jew, the Sabbath day began at sundown on Friday and didn't end till sundown on Saturday. And so here is Jesus in the synagogue in the morning, Jesus in Peter's home in the late morning to the afternoon and beyond. And it's against the Sabbath rules for anyone to work on the Sabbath. And so for them to carry their sick to Jesus, for them to carry the infirmed and the possessed to Jesus would have been a break of the Sabbath rules. And so the people wait until the sun sets to begin to bring sick to Christ. And so they begin to flood Peter's home with the sick. 
And notice the text says that all who had any sick with various diseases, so that's the relatives, they brought them to Christ. So all of these sick were brought to him. This was opportunity at its finest. Another reason to show that what happens today under the guise of healing people is just a sham. Everybody's going to Christ. He's not vetting them out by some little speaker in the ear behind somebody and somebody else with a radio. Yeah, this one's really good. We can, we can. They're not doing any of that. All who had sick were bringing them to him. And he heals them all. You notice that? Laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. There again, beloved, is the inherent power of Jesus Christ on display. In fact, according to Matthew chapter 8, this healing that Jesus was doing was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in visual form. Here it is, Jesus, who had talked about the prophecy in his own hometown. He throws out the demon, presumably talking about the same prophecy even in that synagogue, and now he's fulfilling the prophecy. He take they he he took he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases, prophecy of Isaiah said. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch any of these people. Jesus showed that he cared for them and wasn't hindered by anything. He, he certainly knew the truth about them. He knew where their diseases had come, and f- come from. He knew where the demons certainly had come from. He knew that death and disease could not be permanently removed until sin is permanently dealt with. He knew that. And in the atonement of Jesus Christ, Christ permanently deals with sin. On the cross, Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin, and the person who trusts in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, get this, is immediately delivered. They are immediately cured from the power and the penalty of sin, and one day their deliverance will be completely satisfied in the glories of heaven. The consequences of sin will be completely gone. There'll be no death, no sickness. That's the central message of the gospel, isn't it? The central message of the gospel is just that, deliverance. It's deliverance. Deliverance from sin. The gospel is good news about forgiveness from sin. It's not the the good news that, oh, if you believe in Jesus, then the circumstantial reality of your life will be better. You'll, You'll have a deliverance in this life from whatever you're going through to something better. That's not the gospel. What Jesus had done in the synagogue had brought new hope to a people. These people were wandering in the dark, and Jesus was the light. People are being healed. The demons are being cast out. And notice verse one, verse 41. The demons are coming out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Son of God, and rebuking them. There's that same say, statement. Rebuking them. 
He wouldn't allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew him to be the Christ. Say, that's strange. That's strange. They knew who he was. Demons always had an accurate knowledge of Christ. Right? We saw that even in verse 34. They claimed exactly who Jesus was. They know the truth. But Jesus doesn't want them to speak. Why? Why? Do you, do you read the Scriptures and go, why is that happening? That doesn't seem the way I'd do it. Why would Jesus silence these ones who are speaking truth? Well, I can certainly give an answer to that question. I believe it's because he didn't want any testimony about him to come from those who could not and would not believe in him. You say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus Christ doesn't want testimony of him to come grudgingly. Okay, well, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'll tell you about Jesus. He doesn't want a testimony like that. He doesn't want a testimony to be linked with the powers of darkness. Why? Because there could be, in my mind at least, nothing worse than to have the powers of darkness deceptively claiming in some way to be part of the kingdom of God. Demons going around saying, hey, believe in Jesus, as if people think they're part of the kingdom. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come through signs and wonders. Belief in Jesus Christ is based upon his word, not the testimony of demons. Not because even Jesus has the power over demons and over disease. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He has not come to fix the circumstances of life. That's not why we believe in Jesus. He has come to deliver us unto eternal life and to free us from the bondage of sin and life and the consequences of sin, I should say delivers us from sin, and mitigates even the consequences of our sin. So Jesus, first of all, has the inherent power over all things. Secondly, secondly is his interdependence. His interdependence, verse 42, and when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place. Seems to indicate that Jesus was there all night, going on all night as they continued to bring those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed to Jesus. And Jesus just ministered to them all night long. And somewhere between the hours of possibly 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Christ goes away to be alone. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us it was to pray. He went away to pray, to be with his heavenly father. He went to a lonely place. In other words, he had an interdependence upon the father. 
an interdependence upon the Father. And there is a lesson there for us in life. Think about life. Think about your own life. Think about even ministry that you're involved with in ministry life, a busy day of service in ministry. Here is Jesus Christ. No one could have been busier in ministry than Christ. And here is Jesus having a need for inner refreshment from the only place that it comes, from communing with God the Father. Now that's a lesson to me as a, as a pastor and as a preacher, but it ought to be a lesson to all of us as Christians. Ministry and life are completely dependent upon God. The will of God and how God carries out His will in our life. And Jesus Christ is both an example to us and a challenge to us in how we ought to depend upon the Father. Far too often we leave communion with God as a last resort, don't we? Far too often. We get into some issue, something's going on in our life, some circumstance is causing us some kind of inconstination in our own heart. And we say, well, if nothing else works, I'll pray. Instead, we have to follow the example of Christ. Reading one commentator from years ago, he said this, quote, if Jesus in his great power and oneness with God could sense the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, then how much more you and I need to go to the Father for strength that fills our weakness and the knowledge that fills our ignorance. Prayer brings us into fellowship with God that nothing else can provide, unquote. Jesus Christ had an interdependence upon the Father, and he relied upon it. It was his food, and it must be ours. So here is Jesus demonstrating his inherent power and ability over disease and over the demonic realm, and he's quietly shown in his complete interdependence to be with the Father. And then third, third, His immutable purpose. His immutable purpose. Verse 42 through the end. And the multitudes were searching for Him, and came to Him and tried to keep Him from going away from them. But He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. They searched for Jesus. Jesus had, had put a, an edit into their circumstances of life. God, by his sovereign plan, was authenticating who Jesus was and his message. And so they searched for him. In fact, Mark's gospel was translated, they hunted for him. Hunted. Some of you guys are hunters. You know what that means. It's a great, great description. They're searching for him with determination. And when they find him, they, they want him to continue to do, and they try by their best efforts to keep him from going away from them. 
They don't want him to leave. Why? Because with Jesus around, things are a whole lot better. With Jesus around, life and the circumstances of life don't seem to be so unbearable. Jesus is their new cosmic genie. If he can do this with sickness, could you imagine what he can do with other things? Well, listen, listen, we know this. That is not the purpose of Christ. That is not the immutable purpose of Christ. He came to preach. He came to preach himself as Savior. Jesus came to preach. Preaching was his central focus. All the miracles did was simply verify exactly and authenticate his message. Jesus was determined not to allow, now get this, that he wasn't going to allow the preoccupation with miracles to obscure the message that really saves. Listen to that. Jesus was not going to let miracles and what he could do obscure or fade or put in, in place or, or block what, what he really came to do and the message that does save, which is Jesus Christ, faith in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul said, is salvation. It is the power of salvation unto all who would believe. Right? Signs and wonders never saved anybody. Just listen to what Paul says. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Why? Because with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Then Paul questions, how is it then that they shall call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, not all heed the glad tidings. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. That, beloved, is the immutable purpose of Jesus Christ. It was to preach the gospel of God. Jesus came to preach. He came to preach the gospel, preach himself as the one who would die for sin. Jesus came to preach the good news of himself, and he went around telling the world about himself. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven by which one must be saved. As Christians, we're not called to be healers. 
We're not called to be exorcists. We're called to preach. To proclaim the word of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, for we preach Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach. And that's why Luke records this. Verse 44, and he kept on preaching. Kept on preaching to the church. He he went to the churches. He went to the synagogues to preach. To preach to the people who said they were believers. The people who said they believed in God. He went there to preach the good news. Does healings occur? Sure. Healings occur through Christ. These healings were real. They were immediate. They're always complete. But his immutable purpose is to preach. I love this. Jesus had one son. I'm sorry. God had one son. And he made him a preacher. I like that. I like that. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. He came to preach. Came to preach a message of himself so that we might be saved through him. You know what Jesus is going to do next? He's going to call disciples to himself. Start drawing in the kingdom. We'll get to that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Your word is so rich. Such a blessing to us to just look through it, walk through it, think about it. Ponder on what is here that we might be changed by it. You're such a gracious God to us that you would even tell us these things about yourself. That you would give us the ability and the the way in which we could believe upon you. That you would save us. That you would give us the spirit to lead us in truth that we might know you. Lord, help us in our weakness. You have promised to do so. You have given us your spirit to strengthen us. Help us in our weakness. Remain faithful to you, trusting in you and standing on the word. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us his power. And thank you for uncovering the sham that is so often seen today in these who say they can heal others. You're the only healer. So we trust you. Thank you for your loving us. In Christ's name we pray.